Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to open them up to Luke chapter 1. This morning we're going to take a look at. Um, mainly the Magnificat, Mary's song. We're going to look at verses 26 through 55. Steve called me earlier this week and told me um, the news of Darwin's father. And um, I was overwhelmed uh, with sadness. Darwin's not the only close friend of mine um, who has lost a father uh, just this week. I had another close pastor friend. Um, whose dad was having arthroscopic knee surgery and something went terribly wrong and his father passed off. Um, One of the things that I've been overwhelmed with as I've gotten older is the tragedy that seems to strike around Christmas. I can't recall in recent past a Christmas um, that hasn't been filled with some kind of sadness or trouble, um, some kind of trial or frustration, some kind of disappointment or death. When I was growing up, Christmas was always happy and fun and full of joy. And as I got older, I started wondering, what's so merry about Christmas? What's so joyful about Christmas when Christmas brings with it so much sorrow and so much sadness? But what I want to suggest to you this morning is, is that that's the very thing that makes Christmas so wonderful. Because only in the midst of deep darkness can we see the joy of the light that comes into the world. I hope that this morning God will give you ears to hear and eyes to see, and a heart and a mind to understand and grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep the love of Christ, the love of the Christmas Jesus is for us. Give attention to God's Word from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb And bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's ask the Lord to open up this passage to us this morning. Our gracious God and King, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are holy. We thank You that You are mighty. We thank You that You're merciful. Father, I pray this morning that You would open up for some of us a passage that is all too familiar. Words that we have read and heard times we can't remember. Lord, I pray that You would show it to us in a new and a fresh way. And Lord, for those that might be hearing this for the first time, I pray that the joy of the Jesus of Christmas would fill our hearts, that we might have hope, that we might know help, that we might know true transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What Jesus do you like the best? The words of the legend in his own mind, the certainly not so great Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights, says it this way Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we want to thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, for my two beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or as TR as we call him. And of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who is a stone-cold fox. I also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. And dear Lord, baby Jesus, we also want to thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. It smells terrible, and the dogs are always bothering with it. Dear tiny infant Jesus, his wife breaks in at this point and says, Hum, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. 
um, you don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Ricky says, look, I like the Christmas Jesus the best. And I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus, whoever you want to talk to. She says, I just want you to say this grace good so that we get a win tomorrow. Your tiny Jesus in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little balled-up fist, pawing at her fa- his father-in-law breaks in and says, He's a man! He had a beard! I like the baby version the best. You hear me? I win the races. I get the money. I'm the one that's praying. His, bro- his buddy that's always got his back, Cal breaks in and says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it says to me, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. I like to party. I like my Jesus to party. Finally, the, the prayer starts to come to an end. He says, Dear eight pounds, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly but still omnipotent. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the 21.2 million. Love that money. Woo! Finally, the plane lands. Thank you for all your power and your grace. Dear baby God, amen. Some of you maybe found that humorous. If I'm honest, I found it humorous. Um, the other thing we find it to be is offensive. Um, it's sacrilegious. It doesn't seem like it's something that should certainly be said from the pulpit. I told the, uh, the elders this morning they were prepared to come and tackle me, um, possibly, but I guess we're safe so far. Um, the thing about it is this. This isn't the Jesus that Mary knows in this passage. This isn't the Jesus of this passage. This isn't the Jesus that fills Mary's heart with joy. This isn't the Jesus that reaches down into her weary, depressed, dark soul and lifts her out of the mire and the sadness. But the thing about it is, I sometimes wonder, which Jesus do we like the best? Do we like the Jesus that Mary sings about? Or do we like the Jesus that Ricky Bobby prays about? What's our Jesus? Who's the Jesus that we worship? Which version is closer to the one that we like? I think we like the Christmas Jesus the best. He's cute and cuddly. He's a little baby. Those golden fleece diapers. He's tame. He's manageable. He's controllable. You see, the, the, the Christmas Jesus doesn't, doesn't make us think about all the deep darkness. It doesn't make us think about all of our sin and all of our guilt. He's not the Sermon on the Mount Jesus. He's not the the died on the cross Jesus. He's not the resurrected Jesus. He's the cute little baby Jesus. And you know what babies are good for? Babies bring happiness into our life. That's why most of us, when we do decide we're going to have children, we want to have children so that we can be happy. And that's what we love so much about the Christmas Jesus. Because He's here to make us happy. He's just another version of Santa Claus. He's going to make our lives wonderful. And the second thing is, is He doesn't require much from us. What do babies require? You've got to feed them, you've got to change them, and you've got to give them time to sleep. You've got to make sure that they're well rested. As long as you do those three things, the chances are that they're going to coo and they're going to smile and they're going to be happy with you. And we love the Christmas Jesus because He's come to make our lives happy and and it's manageable, it's conceivable, it's convenient for us to make Him happy. We can sing some extra Christmas carols. Of course, we're not going to start at Thanksgiving. That's too early to start thinking about Christmas. And by the time December 26 rolls around, Christmas has been long gone by then. But at least for that little period between Thanksgiving and December 25th, we're going to sing all about Jesus. We're going to pray to Him. We're going to talk about Him. We're going to go to church a few extra times. We're going to give Him more face time. 
You see, we love the Christmas Jesus because He's not the King Jesus. He's not the one that says, I want to rule and reign over every area of your life. Everything that belongs to you belongs to me. Every area of your life must be bowed down and submitted unto me. No, He's the baby Jesus, the golden fleece diapers, the cute and cuddly one, barely can even speak a word, just coos a little bit. But that's not how Mary viewed Jesus. That's not even how Herod viewed Jesus. Herod knew that Jesus was the king. That's why he sought to destroy him right when he heard news that he was being born. You see, Mary realizes something that I hope we will realize this morning. That the Jesus of Christmas is not safe or manageable or cute or cuddly or convenient. He's not controllable. He's not just a help to her, but he's everything to her and he's everything to us. You see, Mary knows deep down in her soul, deep down in her heart, that the real Jesus, the real Jesus of Christmas, offers real needy people, real hope and real help and a real reason to rejoice. I want you this morning to know that real hope and that real help and that real reason to rejoice. First, I want to take a moment this morning to to give you a little bit of context about why Mary was so overjoyed. And then I want to unpack the two main reasons I see in this passage why Mary is so excited, why her soul overflows with joy. One of the things that you may or may not know is this, that the Hebrew form of the, of the name Mary is Miriam, and it meant bitter herb. Mary was not a, a, a wealthy woman. She was, she was a teenage girl. She was poor. She was plain, Martin Luther says. How many women here would enjoy being termed I was talking to a student just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, his mom had just recently begun to have more comments made about her appearance and how beautiful she seemed to look because she'd started wearing makeup again. And she said to her son, this makes me wonder if there was something wrong with me before. He said, no, mom, there was nothing wrong with you. You were just plain and natural. And I thought I'm sure that most women and most wives would really enjoy their husbands or their sons to tell them that they are just plain and natural. That's who Mary is. She's plain. She's well acquainted with grief. She's downtrodden. The Jews were people of all people to be pitied. They had every reason to be calloused and bitter because it had been 2,000 years since God had made the promise to Abraham that he was going to bless all people through Abraham's seed. It had been 400 years since the last prophet had spoken to God's people. Malachi had spoken 400 years ago. There had been no new word that had been spoken off the lips of one of God's prophets. And here Mary is, and in the midst of this sadness, in the midst of this circumstances, verse 28 happens. It says that Gabriel came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. I think this might be one of the more humorous parts of the Bible. If you think about it, Mary had nothing to to really hold on to. She had no hooks to hang on that would make her or affirm her to believe that God was favoring her. She was a teenage girl. She was poor. She was plain. The people of of her community were people who were, were hungry and starving and poor. They were those that were being taken advantage of. And the angel shows up on the scene and he says, you're the favored one and God is with you. I can only imagine that in her heart she must have thought or had reason to believe. How can you say God is with me? He promised 2,000 years ago to redeem us, and we haven't heard from Him in 400 years. You see, she wasn't troubled by the presence of the angel. 
She was troubled by what he said. And he said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. She goes on and asks the question, How can this be? How can I, a virgin, give birth to a son? And he says, The power of the Most High is going to come upon you, and the Holy Spirit is is going to overshadow you, and you're going to give birth to a son. Nothing is impossible with God. She visits Elizabeth, and Elizabeth joys and gloats and rejoices over her. And Mary is filled with hope because she knows the help that is hers in the Christmas Jesus. Why is Mary so overjoyed? I want to say there's two reasons, and I want you to know these two reasons this morning. And the first is this, because of who Jesus is. Look in your Bibles. In verse 32, it says that they're going to call His name Jesus The name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. In Matthew's gospel, in the Christmas account, it says, and you shall call His name Jesus because He's going to save His people from their sins. Jesus is the Savior. She is going to give birth to the long-awaited one, the long-expected Messiah, the one who's going to come and make things right. The one that's going to reverse the curse and the effects of the curse. Look in verse 32. He's going to be the Son of the Most High. He's going to be the Son of God. He is the All-Highest. He is the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, God-only-wise. This is the baby who will grow in her womb. This is the baby Gabriel prophesies she will give birth to. Verse 35, He will be called Holy. He's going to be a man, but He's going to be God. He's the Son of David, but He's also the Son of God. One of the most amazing parts about it is... In verse 43, as Elizabeth is recounting her joy to Mary, she says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The same God, the same Lord that Elizabeth worships is the same God, the same Lord that will grow in Mary's womb. She's excited because of who Jesus is. Because this is what it means. The fact that Jesus will grow in her womb means that God has kept His promise. The long-awaited Messiah, the one who was prophesied, the one who was predicted, the one who was promised, is the one who will be born unto Mary. And in verses 49 through 50, there are three chief things that are highlighted about who Jesus is. The first thing is said that Jesus is mighty, that He is all-powerful, that He is all-highest, that He is not an impotent God, that He is not a little cute baby, manageable and cuddly, but He is the great King, and His kingdom will have no end. He is mighty to save. He is mighty to redeem. But not only is He mighty, but He's holy. Verse 49, And holy is His name. He comes to do something about our greatest problem. He comes to do something about our sin. He comes to do something about our guilt. He comes to do something about our polluted hearts. He comes to make things right. He doesn't come to cover us and to to prolong our agony, to prolong all of our guilt, to prolong all of our suffering and the monotony of our sin. But He comes to set things right. He's holy. He's opposed to evil. He doesn't tolerate it. He doesn't stand for it. He doesn't get used to it. But He comes to eradicate it. But amazing, He's not only mighty and holy, but in verse 50, and His mercy is for those who fear Him. He's merciful. He's a God of mercy from generation to generation. He's a God who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He's Emmanuel, the God who is with us and the God who is like us. 
Imagine what it must have been like for Mary and for Elizabeth, for any woman in these days. Women were not smiled upon. They were not highly regarded. One of the prayers that Jewish men would pray is, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman. Can you imagine those words being spoken off the lips of a man who claimed to be a follower of God? God, I think I'm not a woman. You know that a woman's testimony was not even you know, allowed in court. It wasn't permitted. It wasn't permissible. It wasn't respected in a court setting. There was a great prejudice among women. And here, here Mary is, and she knows this deep, this, this deep uh, sadness. She knows how she's been maligned. She knows the mistreatment. She knows that she and women like her are not viewed as those who are created in God's image. And yet, the God, the long-awaited Messiah, is going to be born by her. And He's going to come and set things right. He comes to know her. He comes to identify with her. He comes to change her and to transform her. That's the first reason that Mary's so excited about the Jesus of Christmas. He's not controllable. He's not convenient. He's not tame. He's not cute and cuddly. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the king who's going to ascend the throne and rule and reign over all things. But the second reason that she's excited, the second reason that she rejoices, really can't be separated from his person, but it's what we need to talk about. It's because of what Jesus comes to do. Verse 46, it says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She rejoices because Jesus has come to save her. Jesus has come to redeem her. Jesus has come to do something about her sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to talk about how the whole Old Testament is looking forward to this event. He says, think about the people of the Old Testament. They were going to their tabernacle and to their temple, taking their burnt offerings and meal offerings and sacrifices, animals being killed, blood being shed and offered, placed before the altar, and so on. But all of this was just a covering for their sins for the time being. You see, all those sacrifices and all that monotony and all of that ritual could do nothing permanent, could do nothing fully and finally for their sin. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They're simply covered over. They simply pointed, and beautifully they pointed, to the once for all sacrifice. The reason Mary rejoices Because the Savior, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, was coming to make things right. He was coming to take away her sin. As the great Christmas carol and hymn, Joy to the World says, Jesus had come to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. But there's a second part of Jesus' work. He'd come to establish His kingdom. He'd come to rule and reign over all things. His kingdom was defined by justice and righteousness and mercy and grace. Look in verse 51. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Jesus was coming and has come to set things right, to do something about all the prejudice in the world, all the racism, all the social, all the ethnic all the social strife and injustice, all the things that are out of order with the world around us. Jesus had come to make things right. His kingdom was defined by justice and by righteousness, but also mercy. He's going to exalt those of humble estate. 
Verse 53, He filled the hungry with good things. He's come to fill those that are starving. He's come to do something for those that can't help themselves. He's come to do something for those who understand their neediness. He's come to transform their way of life. I think the reason that Mary was so overwhelmed with the birth of Christ is because the ironic blessing from Numbers 6, 24 and 26, my favorite benediction of, uh, in, in all the Bible, had become a reality for her. You've heard it many times. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you His peace. That had become a reality for Mary. The Lord was blessing her. The Lord was keeping His promises to her and His people. The Lord was making His face shine upon her. The Lord was being gracious to her. The Lord had turned His face toward her and given her His peace. But how could He do it? How can God do that for us? Because He's the suffering servant. Because He's the King who left His throne in order to come and serve and die for us. You see, the Lord blesses us because He cursed His Son. The Lord keeps us because He forsook the Lord Jesus on the cross. The Lord's face shines upon us because all of our sin fell upon Christ and God's wrath fell upon Him. The Lord gives us peace because the Lord Jesus was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God for us. You see, my friends, there's real hope. There's real help. There's real reason to rejoice in the real Jesus. But there's always that so what that has to be answered in every sermon. So what? So what does this mean for me today? So how does this change my life today? A few weeks ago, I was doing a Bible study for one of the sororities at TCU. They'd asked me to do it the whole fall semester, and we'd meet at 8 o'clock in the evening, and I'd go into the sorority chapter room. And normally, we had about six or eight girls that would show up. But on this particular night, they sent out an email. They knew what I was talking about. I was going to talk about being a godly woman. Obviously, I know a lot about that. Um, and so I walked in. I was called my intern Nathan on the phone. I said, I really don't want to do this. I've been dreading this night for a long... It's easier to preach on it than to sit in a small group circle and talk to girls about being a godly woman. Um, so I walked in, 22 girls piled in the chapter room. I was anticipating there three or four. The week before, we'd actually only had two girls that were there, 22. So I sat there and I told them about what real beauty, real godliness looks like. It's not about the outward appearance. God looks in the heart. It's about that inward beauty of the soul. And one of the girls said, I said, what do you make of this? And one of the girls said, you know, Rob, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the ratio is not too good on this campus. There are a whole lot more girls than there are guys around here. And um, not only that, there are a lot of beautiful girls on this campus. And not only that, I don't know any guys that are looking for that beautiful heart. I just know a lot of guys that are looking for that beautiful body. And I sat across from them, and I had to say, you're right. I don't know any guys either that are looking for that. And I know the ratio. And I, and I have a feeling, I think I can comprehend to some degree, the pressure that you feel. And so I think for maybe just for a brief moment, there were some girls in that room who finally for a moment were allowed to just let down the guard, let down their pressure, and to maybe find a little bit of hope and climb inside the beautiful peace that is offered to them in the Bible 
that God loves them not for how they look, but for who they are on the inside. But the tragedy was this. I don't, I don't, it's not that I doubt that God is at work. It's not that I doubt that God can work. It's just the tragedy that I felt in my soul was as I left there that day, I knew that the next morning there were going to be a lot of girls that rose up early in the morning to go to the, uh, to the wreck, to work out, to sweat away those calories, to lose those pounds. I knew that there were a lot of girls that were going to watch every ounce of food, every gram of fat that they consumed the next day. I knew there were going to be people that worked out in the morning and at night, people who were going to put on their best clothing, people that were consumed by what the world has to offer in fashion. All these girls that were going to put on this outward shell that would make them presentable to the world, but maybe just for about 30 minutes during that Bible study, they could have some kind of peace. I think that's how Christmas approaches us at times. That's the Jesus of Christmas. He offers all this hope and all this help and all this joy for our sadness. But does He really change us? Does He really transform us? Is it a, is it a transformation that lasts? The so what of this passage is this, that we must trust Him. We must run to Him. We must rest in Him. Beautiful quote. I thought that sounded great. I was thinking about this the other day. I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty great. That's kind of articulate. We must trust Him. But, but the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to trust Him? Oh, you know, it means to trust Him. No, you don't know. What it means to trust Jesus is it means that our minds and our hearts and our will are gripped and shaped and transformed by the beauty of who Jesus is and by the glory of what He's come to do. It means that every part of Jesus begins to grow upon us and grow in us and move us and shape us and transform us. It's the whole idea of what it means to be blessed by Jesus. Elizabeth said, blessed are you and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary says, all generations will call me blessed. This beautiful word blessed pops up more than once in this passage. We use the word blessed when somebody sneezes. Bless you. Or maybe when somebody drops a newspaper off on our doorstep, bless your little heart. Appreciate you doing that. Um, but you see, our version of bless is kind of limp. It's kind of hollow. But that's not the kind of blessing that God talks about in this passage. The blessing of the Bible is complete and utter transformation. It's, it's, it's turning things upside down. It's complete fulfillment. It's transformation in every way. What it means to trust in Jesus, to run to Him, to rest in Him, is it means that every part of our being submits to Him, is transformed by Him, hopes in Him, glories in Him, looks to Him, follows Him, sees Him as our brother, our pastor, our shepherd, our friend. You see, there's a truth that Jesus offers us in this passage. It's a truth that transforms us if we trust in Him. first thing you've got to do, though, if you're going to trust in Jesus, is you have to acknowledge what Mary acknowledges in this passage. In verse 48, it says, He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Mary knows her need. Mary doesn't claim to be perfect or without sin. She doesn't claim to be this one who is complete in and of herself. But she is one who is needy. The reason she rejoices is because God fills her need with Jesus. It does away with self-righteousness. It does away with looking down on other people. It does away with feelings of superiority. It does away with all of our hiding and all of our covering up because Jesus calls us out into the open and He says, I know your needs and I've come to make, them, I've come to make you whole. 
I've come to cover you once and for all, fully and finally. It ends our hopelessness. It ends, it, it ends our cynicism. It ends all of our doubt and our darkness because God keeps promises. The promise that God made 2,000 years ago is being, is being kept here. It's already been kept for us. God completes what He starts. Our world is filled with hope. It ends running after all the idols. It means that we don't have to, to worry so much about are our children just as perfect as they can be. Am I the best parent I can be in all the world? Am I successful enough? Do I need to be shameful about what I do? Do I need to feel down about how much money is in my bank account? Do I need to feel down about how the fact is that I'm not really that important? I'm not really that well known. I'm not really that socially connected. It deals with, with how we look to other things to fill us. The way that we deal with sex. The way that we deal with addiction. The way that we deal with control. All the things that we use to fill us and to make us whole. It deals with our hurt and our bitterness. All the ways that we've been sinned against. The way that we guard ourselves from God because we're not going to be hurt again. We're angry and we're frustrated and we don't want to be broken anymore. It ends that because Jesus calls us out in the open and He says, Don't run to those things. Don't put your confidence in princes. Don't put your confidence in these false gods. Put your trust in me. I've come to make you whole. Because I'm mighty and I'm holy and I'm merciful. You see, Jesus puts an end to our meaningless lives. He gives us a purpose. He gives us a reason to live. To live for God. To seek His kingdom and His righteousness. To seek a world defined by justice and righteousness and mercy and grace. Not a world defined by emptiness. But I think one of the things that's most amazing about the passage is that Mary shows us that we have reason to rejoice, that we can trust in God because He gives us strength for today and He gives us hope for tomorrow. He's a God who keeps His promises. I, I thought as I was looking at this passage, I thought about how there's so much confession and profession that my lips make. But what do I really believe about the end of all things? What do I really believe about living in the world we live in today where the economy is not in good shape at all? What do I really believe when friends' fathers are passing away? What do I really believe when my life is filled with hardship? Is there really hope for me? Does God really keep His promises? And He does. He keeps His promises. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. He remembers His promises as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. God is committed to us. When I was at Furman University, I had a couple of students that, when I started out in ministry, they started out as freshmen. Their names were Leslie and Lanier. And Lanier was one of the sweetest guys I've ever known. He's still a dear friend of mine. Lanier was, I would say he was a real man because he was sensitive and he was honest and he didn't try to cover up who he was. He, he acknowledged his neediness. And one day he came to me and he said, Rob, I think there's something wrong with me. I said, what's wrong, Lanier? He said, um... I just can't stop thinking about her. I just can't stop thinking about Leslie. And I said, that might not be something wrong with you. It might be that there's something right with you. They'd been dating the whole time that they'd been there, and he was, he was a junior at this point. And he said, you know, I think, I think I'm going to want to marry her. So time passes, and they get in, they're engaged, and we're standing in the front of the church, and I'm seeing Lanier up front. The doors are about to part. She's about to come down the aisle. 
And Lanier was a very emotional guy. And his face is completely beat red. Tears are running down his cheeks. His knees are beginning to buckle. I'm ready. I'm prepared. I'm going to have his back. Even though this is only like my second or third wedding, I'm fairly nervous too. But I'm going to be there for my brother. And um, I see him just falling apart up front. And especially when the doors opened. And he saw his bride walking down the aisle. And he was overjoyed. So what? That's a picture of Jesus, my friends. You see, that's Jesus in the front. That's Jesus, the bridegroom, in the front of the church. And that's us walking down the aisle. You see, that's Jesus who's committed to us. That's the Jesus of Christmas, the one who keeps His promises. That's the Jesus who comes not as a cute, cuddly baby, who's controllable and tame. That's the mighty King who comes to set things right. That's the Jesus of Christmas. My friends, I want you to know that Jesus is mighty that He's holy, that He's a merciful King. I want you to know that Jesus has come to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Run to Him. Rest in Him. Put your trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would help us to know the joy of Christmas. Lord, help us to know the joy of the real Jesus, the One who gives us a real reason to hope, who brings real help into our lives and calls forward a real legitimate reason for us to rejoice because you save us from our sins. Lord, help us put our trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy love